0: Good evening, uh, friends, brothers and sisters. The Lord be with you. Today we will be discussing and reflecting on the gospel passage I read just now, taken from Luke, uh, the gospel of Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 22, uh, which deals mainly with the topic of the baptism of Christ. You can find this on page 1023, as we were there just now. And there is also a rough sermon guide, a very simple sermon guide in the center of the white bulletin, which might prove to be useful if you are following the uh, sermon. Uh, Let us pray as we begin our reflection. Our Heavenly Father, thank you once again for gathering us as a people uh, under your name. And as you open uh, your word to us, uh, we pray for your spirit to open our hearts to you too, Lord, as you reveal yourself to, to us. And I pray, Father, for your your guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, that I will speak the truth and be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our friends, as we begin our discussion, we have uh, before us, if you can see in your bulletin, we have before us two uh, questions. The first one, John baptism, what was it? And the second one, Jesus, why did he need to be Uh, baptized. Now friends, the story of John the Baptist, uh, especially as it relates to the baptism of Jesus, can vary in detail in each of the respective uh, synoptic uh, Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. These differences, some people claim, Uh, were were made up of inaccuracies and therefore do not fully represent the truth as it happened during the time. However, for us, these differences can also be taken uh, together to make up a more complete picture of what had happened there. As each of the Gospel writers recorded the impressions that matter most to the different sources of information. But we living in the 21st century, we have the luxury of having these three Gospels that we can spread out in front of us and that we can compare and contrast. In fact, using the powerful uh, PCs that we have now, we could probably be able to do an electronic comparison and we can see where the gaps are in each of the Gospels and fill in the gaps and therefore build up a total picture of the baptism story. But if you were a Jew living in the first century Palestine, you would not have had the luxury of reading these three uh, separate accounts and having the luxury to compare them and put them together into a more complete picture. Rather, the stories that you hear would have been very uh, confusing and complex. They would be coming from all sides, uh, bombarding you uh, as each uh, person uh, gets very excited after visiting the Jordan and seeing John there, and uh, come and and speak to you about what impressions they have. You would, in fact, be um, made so interested that you would want to go and see for yourself and experience for yourself. John's baptism at the Jordan, you would have wanted to see that strange man called John who went around the first century AD baptizing people in the river Jordan. Who was he? What was he doing? Uh, So what was John's baptism all about? Now if you turn with me, we'll try to answer that question. You'll try to answer that question. If you turn with me to uh, chapter 3, to the very beginning uh, on the previous page, 1022, to verse 1. And you see Luke recording that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and so on and so forth, a long list of important rulers of the time. Now they serve to place us at the exact date, more or less, of... Uh, When John's ministry started, that would be around the year 29 AD. And as we read the end of verse 2, continuing into verse 3, you will see why John was doing it. Why was John doing the baptism? We read, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The word of God came to John, and John walked up to the call of God and went into the, the, the wilderness to the river Jordan to uh, baptize people. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance, and yet a baptism of repentance that looked forward, anticipating for the, for the forgiveness of sins. So it seems like we have an answer here to our question, what was John's baptism all about? The answer to our question seems to be that John's baptism is a baptism or was a baptism of repenting as we look forward to the forgiveness of sin. And that brings us directly to our second question. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Because if it was for the repentance of sin and for the forgiveness of sin, why would Jesus, whom the Bible says is a sinless person, why would Jesus need to, be, to repent when he was sinless and be baptised for sin and for forgiveness? In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 3, from verses 14 to 15, the John, John the Baptist recognised this, and he said he would have prevented Jesus from coming to him. And he said this, I need to be baptised by you, and you come to me? And Jesus answered him in the following verse, "Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness." Jesus made two points here in Matthew to fill up the picture for us. Firstly, the baptism pointed to not to Jesus needing to repent for sin, but to Jesus identifying himself with the need of sinful humanity who would need to repent of their sins. Jesus came, Jesus identified himself with humanity uh, who needs to repent for their sins. And the second point Jesus made was that through Jesus' righteous life and his final act of obedience on the cross, Jesus would make sinful humanity right once again with God. In Jesus. We do it for righteousness' sake. So we have an answer too. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Firstly, to identify himself with humanity's need for repentance, and secondly, to make humanity right with God again. And so as we come to our passage in Luke, we see other concerns in the questions that the early Jews asked. And in case we have been diverted from our original passage, we are now back to verse 15 on page 1023. And let me just read to you uh, what I call Baptism Part 1. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now friends, that same sentence might have been used to describe The Jews longing throughout their long history after the fall of Judah to the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. The list of rulers that we read just now in Luke 3 verses 1 to 3, that we saw just now as we began our reflection, emphasised that the Jews were a subdued people under the heels of the Romans, and under the heels of the local puppet kings and Tetrarchs. And Tetrarchs just mean a minor ruler. Worse still for the Jews, if you were a Jew, you would be under the heels of Roman puppet kings and Tetrarchs who were not Jews themselves. In fact, they were of Edomian descent from the line of Edom or Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. There have been bitter enemies throughout history, and the Edomians or the Edomites were very much hated by the Jews. And although for a short period of time in their history, during the Maccabean Wars, uh, in the second century BC, when they were when the Edomians were temporarily defeated and forced to be circumcised, they were still at this uh, point in their history hated for their ancestry and also for their support of the Roman authorities. The Jews longed for the fulfilment that had been promised in their historical writings and in their wisdom writings and in their prophetic writings. The Jews longing for the Lord's anointed, a Messiah, a Jewish king whom God would raise up from the line of David, who would come and defeat the enemies, not just the Edomians, who would defeat the Romans and any other enemies that were around, and who would bring judgment on them and then rule over them forever and ever. And this ancient hope and expectation rose once again to the surface when John came along. And the question they asked was, is John, is he the Christ? And listen to John's response in the following uh, passage from 16, the first part of 16 onwards. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. That was totally unexpected. They asked whether he was the the, the Messiah and he said, I baptize you with water. John seemed to be shifting away uh, from answering the question. But in the same breath, John pointed to something else. Let's read the rest of verse 16. I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John met two things here, pointing first of all to one mightier than him, so mighty that John was not even fit to untie the strap of his sandals, something that the lowest uh, service That would be performed by the lowest group of slaves. John was not even fit to do that. And the second thing that John pointed to was that this mightier one would not not baptise with water. He would baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John made one more point in the following verse. He said this, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The winnowing fork is a scriptural symbol of judgment, a fork to separate the wheat from the useless chaff that would be burned. And this one is not only burned with uh, ordinary fire, it would be burned with unquenchable fire, unquenchable fire, a picture of the awesome day of the Lord, the prophets spoke about. John was directing the attention of the Jews who asked him this question to the one who was to come after him. And he assured them when we read verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. He seemed to be a, 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 a ascertaining assuring them that the prophetic promise would certainly come to pass and that the Lord will send his Messiah. And then two verses came into this passage that seems to be out of sync with the rest of the uh, baptism story. And uh, this I call an interlude where John was imprisoned, uh, verses 19 and 20. Our Gospel writer Luke chose to place the imprisonment of John by Herod Herod Antipater here rather than chronologically uh, as the uh, writers of Matthew and Mark did. Let me read to you verses 19 to 20. But Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him, John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, Added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The main reason that Luke put this passage in here was that he wanted the focus on John the Baptist to end here. The story of John the Baptist was to end here, and Jesus' story was to begin. Now, this was especially significant when, as we continue to read the last two verses of our passage, In verses 21 and 22, we realise that John's name was not even mentioned. Even though we know from the other uh, two synoptics, Mark and Matthew, that it was John who baptised Jesus at the Jordan. And we have Luke referring to this also in Acts chapter 10 and also Acts chapter 13. So it's clear that this interlude uh, was done as... Luke wanted to take John out of the picture, though later in his uh, Gospel, it was going to be mentioned again in chapter 7 when his, John sent his disciples to find out more about Jesus, whether he was the Messiah, and also in chapter 9 when King Herod wondered whether Jesus was the resurrected John whom he had beheaded earlier. Luke wanted to make sure that we know John's mission is over. He had pointed people to the mightier one to come, the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we hear the echo of the prophet Isaiah that was cited previously in our passages from verse 4 to 6 on the previous page. John was the one, John was the one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight calling people to acknowledge the sin and to repent, to await the coming of the Lord, the Mighty One, which nothing and nobody could stop from carrying out God's plan for salvation. And we read that in verse six, and all flesh shall shall see the salvation of God. He could now leave the stage to Jesus. And we see that this interlude Uh, in the baptism story was to lift our eyes, lift and shift our eyes from John to Jesus, the mighty one to come after John. Uh, Just to add a couple of more points from this part of the passage, we notice how John did not hesitate to point out the wrongdoings of Herod or of anyone else, no matter how big and important he was or what the personal consequences to himself might be he was not afraid of pointing them out too. And number two, Luke expands John's condemnation of Herod uh, for Herod's other evils which were not listed here and which the other synoptics, strangely enough, also did not list. And, chapter, and uh, the, the third point that Luke wanted to make was that Luke considers that the imprisonment of John was an additional, the pinnacle, if you like, of evil perpetuated by Herod uh, on uh, uh, his society at that time. And so we come to the final part of our passage, which I call Baptism Part 2, the last two verses. Let me read verse 21 to you. And now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also has been baptized and was praying, now as as we have seen earlier, Here we have a picture of Jesus identifying himself with humanity's need to repent, uh, even though he himself was sinless. But by using words like when all the people were baptised, when Jesus also had been baptised, was it possible that Luke was teaching us something else about Jesus' baptism? Is it possible that Jesus was endorsing, at this point, John's ministry of water baptism? as he himself joined the people being baptized at the Jordan. A picture of the mightier one who chose to come to be baptized by the humbler one and by this action gave credibility to his ministry. Let me read, uh, continue to read from 21 onwards. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Question that we have in our bulletin, is is Luke painting a picture of the triune God here? Now, strangely enough, if we uh, read it carefully, the description in Luke is different from the accounts written in Matthew and Mark. And Jesus has chosen to show, uh, Luke has chosen to show Jesus after the baptism, praying rather than at the point of coming out of the Jordan immediately after the uh, baptism. Here we see a picture of Jesus in communion with his Father to whom he was praying. But similar to Matthew and Mark, Luke recorded that the heavens were opened. In fact, Mark chose an even more dramatic expression. He said, he recorded that the heavens were torn open. That great dramatic uh, description of the heavens being torn open by some supernatural awesome force. Now in Scripture, The description of the heaven's opening is used to show that God is dramatically entering, acting in human history, of God revealing himself, doing something at important points in the history of mankind. Luke builds up the the picture. The picture becomes even more intense at this point. He recorded the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus in bodily form the Holy Spirit coming down in bodily form. Now friends, Luke recorded here the Holy Spirit, not a dove, descending on Jesus. Luke is describing the action of the bodily form of the Spirit settling down gently on the kneeling Jesus who was in prayer to his Father. And Luke builds up to a climax And the climax was God's voice thundered out from the open heavens. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Friends, we may indeed interpret the occasion to show the presence of the three persons, and which undoubtedly it was. But I figure that Luke's intention at this point is even more. It was more to emphasize that. Picture of a human Jesus kneeling down praying to the Father being anointed by the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and being endorsed by the voice of his Father for the work of the Father that the Father has sent him to do the salvation of the world this was a picture that points towards the Messianic King the King that God will raise from uh, the root of David, the Davidic king of scripture, the Messiah himself. This was a picture that Luke used, a human Jesus kneeling down, the Holy Spirit coming on him and the voice of God commissioning him and sending him forth. And now uh, we need to sweep up something that uh, John was speaking about, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire, which we have not covered yet. And uh, if you read this passage, you won't be able to find any answer to it. It will be left to Luke's second book, the book of Acts, when we can see the fulfillment of this prophecy. It will be after Jesus has accomplished his work on the cross he has gone, suffered, and died on the cross for the sin of humankind. And it will be after Easter, three days later, when God raised His Son from the dead. It will be after the ascension of Jesus to sit at the, at the right hand of God, 40 days after Easter. Luke, in his second book, will describe in Acts 2, verses 1 to 3, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, when the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples with a sound of a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire that would settle down upon the disciples gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And a small, cowering, frightened group of 120 disciples hiding in a locked room in the center of jerusalem for fear of being exposed as jesus's people suddenly suddenly lost all fear and began to speak without any reserve about the one who had died to save for god a people of his own These small cowering people have been empowered by the holy spirit and has gone forward and the bible tells us Majority of these people would later be uh, martyred, killed for their faith, for trusting in Jesus Christ, for acting as Jesus' disciples. So in conclusion, friends, today, this evening, we have discussed in some detail John's water baptism, the need of it. We have also heard how John points uh, people away from himself to Jesus, the mighty one who comes after him who will will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we have also reflected on John's own baptism with the Holy Spirit, coming in bodily form and settling gently on him as he prays to the Father and the Father's voice endorsing him and identifying him as the Messiah figure who will lead his people to uh, freedom. And friends, as Anglicans worshipping in an Anglican church, we are especially happy. We are thrilled with the idea of baptism. We love to bring our young babies, sometimes our older children, uh, if they have not been baptised when they were younger, we, want, we love to bring our children to church for baptism, are surrounded by as many friends and family members as we can possibly gather at that material point in time. And at St Mary's, we have an even greater uh, tradition. We have previous Congregants or members of our congregation who had uh, moved away, migrated away to faraway places like the US, Canada, uh, Europe, the UK, Australia, who want to bring their children, their newborn children, back to the church that they originate from for baptism, for water baptism. They want to be seen to identify the baptism of their children with a form in which their grandparents, their parents, and they themselves were baptized in. What a wonderful tradition. And we have requests coming from all parts of the world for baptism to be carried out, and uh, them listing their credentials uh, for so uh, requesting such a, a baptism. Now friends, when we do that, When we bring the very young and the underaged children, we undertake on their behalf a couple of things, a few things. Firstly, we receive on their behalf, as it were, the promises that God had made to His new covenantal people, the Christians who believe in His Son and trust in Him for their salvation. Additionally, we promise together with the child's other sponsors, the godfathers, the godmothers, the godparents, the relatives who are Christians, to bring up the child in the knowledge and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, until the child is old enough to make his or her own promises to be faithful disciples of Jesus at his or her own confirmation before the bishop. Additionally, we bring the child into the community of believers in church the church both local and worldwide giving the church an identity as part of God's people giving the child a place in God's community and giving the child the support of God's people local and worldwide but we should be cautious that when we are doing this to not to do this for the temporary or momentary experience, expecting that the moment of baptism, of water baptism, somehow confers a special spiritual status on the child without the need to educate and bring up the child in the fear of the Lord as Lord and Saviour. Friends, we must remember today's study that it is in the baptism of the Holy Spirit That we fall under the Lord's will and His rule over our lives As His Holy Spirit works in us Turning us from what we were to what we are And eventually to what He wills us to be It is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives Not the simple momentary experience of water baptism It is in the Holy Spirit that we will go out and to point others and lead others to the Savior and to minister to them in brotherly love. Now for most of us, the memories of our baptism and the memories of our confirmation promises might have been many, many years ago. I speak for myself. I was confirmed, I was baptized more than 65 years ago and confirmed maybe more than 55 years ago. And sometimes, in the struggle of living in this world, amidst all the tensions, the frustrations, and the temptations of, good, of enjoying good things, we may have forgotten or have pushed our baptismal and our uh, confirmational uh, promises into the far recesses of our mind. The promises that we will turn away from evil, The promises that we make to trust in Jesus Christ. The promises that we made to be His faithful followers. And friends, today, if we are in that position like me, today would be a good time for us to reflect once again on them and to allow the fruits of the Holy Spirit to appear once again in our lives as Paul wrote in Galatians 5 listing down the fruit of the Holy Spirit as love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the Apostle Paul went on to say, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, which is patience and desires. But more than that, friends, brothers and sisters, this gift is baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire. They are not meant to glorify us or to give praise to ourselves that we are Christians and we have the baptism of fire, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This gives about above all about God. A God who loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us so that believing in Him and trusting in Him we can have eternal life. That is the baptism that we are looking for. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you once again for that wonderful passage reminding us of uh, the baptism and how important it is and how in baptism we are united in Christ through his death and we are also united in him through his resurrected life. And that trusting in him and holding on to him We allow the Holy Spirit, Lord, to work in us, to change us from what we are, from what we were, to what we are, and to what we will be, in accordance to his will. And Father, we thank you, and we praise you, and give glory to you, in Jesus' most holy name. Amen.